happy Saturday. It is August 28th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I am Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Welcome to the show. Well, it is nearly the end of August, but we have a summary issue that has more fun than you could possibly ever ask for. Let's start with the nudists. There's, it's never a bad place to begin. Or as they're called in the UK, naturists. They might be called naturists in the UK, but they seem to be having problems refilling their ranks in America, right? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it's just they're not quite as popular over here as they are over there. I don't know what this says about our feelings of positive self-image and uh, self-worth, but I guess we lack the confidence of our friends across the pond. Well, I think it comes down to a generational thing. You know, as as, as, uh, Josephine de la Briere writes in A Modern Times, uh, piece this week uh, with some very good reporting. You know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, the the um, baby boomers all stripped off their clothes and got naked at Woodstock and got into sort of natural. Now they're getting a little older. Um, they still have their sort of nudist resorts like the Glen Eden Sun Club in Corona, California, but they're having troubles replenishing their stock. Mostly it's because Ironically, Gen Zers and millennials who are used to kind of, you know, sexting each other photographs and and, uh, being nude in maybe a digital format are not so comfortable or do they think it is so cool to be naked in a social setting? I can hardly blame them. I always prefer to be naked if I can be digitally retouched. (laughs) It's just too real. Like, you really want me to have coffee with you sitting there in the buff? Like, absolutely not. Unless I, unless there's a filter that can be applied to that scenario, I'm not interested. <laughs> so sorry, readers, if you guys were hoping that we, Michael and I would be hosting a nudist retreat in which we would get together and discuss arts and letters, it ain't happening. However, Gwyneth Paltrow, Michael, is here to trick your vacation into a scenario you never would have thought possible. Yeah, this is a one I would headline goop overboard. <laughs> God, I should have called it that. Oh, man. As always, Michael wins on the headline. Gwyneth is coming for your cruises. Like, it's not enough that she's ruining your life with her well-intentioned newsletters. No, now she's coming for your vacation. And she has partnered up with Celebrity Cruises, of course, to offer a bunch of very goopy wellness-themed adventures starting this fall. So there are some things that the pandemic just can't kill, and this is one of them. For me, the point of vacation is to get away from all of that psychobabble, but perhaps I'm in the minority here. Like, if we're talking about me and vacation, it's all about a rum punch, a swimsuit, a good novel, and like some sheer hedonistic escapism. It's not about like, you know, focusing on my breathing and, you know, having my chakras realigned or whatever that is. Like, not quite yet. But I know that there's a market for that. More power to you. You just will not find me there. Yeah, I don't think you'll be seeing me on one of those cruises anytime soon. So I guess I'm two for two and no nudists and no Gwyneth Paltrow cruises. What else can I Can I go three for three today on things I won't do? It's trop compliqué. Trop compliqué. And that's a French word, which is a French phrase, which is a transition to, I think, our next story, which is about like also one guy's way to uncomplicate his life. Uh, Emmanuel Macron. Do you want to take this story? Oh, I love the Macrones. What's not to love about the Macrones? Is it the reality of the relationship? The May-December vibe? Is it the gossip about the relationship? Is it the rumor and innuendo? It's all of it. And there is a new book that gets to the heart of the matter and takes you inside the bedroom of Brigitte and Emmanuel Macron, the first couple of France. Oh, mon Dieu. 
All right. So let's start with their bedtime routine. Okay. So the story that we have in the issue just really gets to the heart of this codependent relationship between the president and his grand dame. An addictively readable new book on the Macrons has recently been published, and the writer is named Gail Chakaloff, a political biographer who was a close friend of the Macrons until they failed to convince her to stop writing a book about them. That does tend to be a buzzkill. Chakaloff writes a portrait of a literature-loving young leader who is deeply attached to his wife, a former teacher, 24 years his senior, and she was central to his unlikely election as a political ingenue in uh, 2017. And Chakalov takes you right into their bedroom and explains this codependent relationship and how Macron really relies on his wife for, for uh, you know, guideposts through his presidency. Yeah, he's kind of, uh, it's, you know, it's got the French thinking in some ways that Macron, who again, was, uh, his, his wife was his drama teacher when he was in high school and he married her and she still has this tremendous sway over him. Uh, and people feel like she's become kind of this Nancy Reagan figure to what what was in her relationship with with Ronald Reagan and has uh, an incredible amount of influence over her. She's reported to be very intelligent, of course, but you know it's um, it's got tongues wagging in France, right? There's a really damning there's a really damning quote from Macron's mother, which is crazy. Uh, Macron's mother tells the author that she thinks that her son is happy, but he still hasn't found his calling. Like being the president's fine, not quite good enough. And her, her quote is this, I'm convinced that he will turn to writing, that he will change path. He's not the kind who will do political conferences around the world. At 27, he didn't know what he would do in life. And I think it's still the same. Well, if being the president of France, one of the great republics is not a legacy, then I don't know what is, but that is a subject for Dr. Freud. I guess we're not going to get into that here. Speaking of Dr. Freud, shall we bring on our special guest? Uh, I would love to, because I think this is a um, story that, you know, you, you've heard different pieces of different times across the years. But we have a brave and captivating piece this week by a woman named Diana DeVay, who is a psychotherapist in New York City. And she has written a piece by, called JFK and the Radcliffe Girl. And it is about how she, as a young woman at Radcliffe, 20, 21 years old, in 1958, fell into a relationship with Senator John Kennedy, uh, who then became president while they were still involved in an affair. And it's her sort of looking across the decades at what she, who she was then and what she learned about herself and, and uh, then and, and, and into now. Yeah, let's bring her on. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. I have so many questions. We're going to start with the most obvious. Is this the first time you've ever told this story? Well, it's certainly the first time I've ever told it in print. I mean, there have been rumors floating around for years. I mean, my thought in telling it now is, A, I'm so old, but I'm luckily a lot smarter. And I now have language for my life, my feelings, my imagination. Then I had adrenaline. And that was it. And so that when this starry person came along and shone on me, I just thought, oh, gosh, this is wonderful. So let's take listeners back to this period that you're talking about. Is the year 1958? You're a student at Radcliffe? Right. 
Where were you when you first encountered JFK? I met him at a political dinner in 1958. I was 20 years old. I was a junior at Radcliffe and my date had volunteered for his campaign. And so they had offered him tickets to this kind of political gala. Then Senator Kennedy began to, as they say, work the room and ended up at the table where I was sitting. And he just had the most fabulous line in the world because he said to my date, James, I hear you've done great things for our campaign, and I'm going to ask for one more favor. So my date leapt up and said anything, blah, blah, blah. And Senator Kennedy said, give your seat to a tired old man who wants to sit next to a pretty girl. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought that was the smoothest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. I mean, the hero of the moment was saying he wanted to sit next to a pretty girl, and that was me. So that was pretty terrific from my point of view. Maybe it isn't quite so terrific now, but at the time, I thought it was great. And then he said, so I, you know, then there was some conversation and was I interested in politics and this and that? And would I like to come to some of the rallies in the suburbs? and see how political life on the ground took place. Well, guess what? The answer to that was yes. Yeah, and then you, you sort of quickly fall into that orbit or that you, you describe over uh, how, how he sort of wooed you in. And, and you, you, what you talk about is a very charismatic person, but also someone who's, as we know now, clearly versed in the arts of seduction, right? Yes, very deliberate. I mean, in other words... I was always surrounded by people from his, his team, his entourage. And they were always saying, oh, it's so great to see you here. Oh, it's just wonderful to have you. It's so great to know that you're interested in politics. Can we get you a coffee? And then I would be escorted into his car to go away from the event. And it all seemed like it was the most fun in the world. And he would be appreciative and he would say, gosh, you know, he would talk with his friends in the car and say, listen, we've really got to put our best foot forward here. I mean, we are competing with the library and everybody would laugh and I would think, oh, gosh, isn't this great? And I'm being taken seriously. And I was a student of Middle Eastern history at the time. And that was not what everybody was studying. But what did I think about that? I mean, so it was very much team effort. Do you know what I mean? There was a world around them that supported not just his campaign, but his, um, let's just say, interest in women, right? I was just going to say, and the culture. You have to remember the culture before the women's movement. When I was at college, I was either studying in the library or I was sitting in my dormitory in the hall smoking because we could smoke in the hallway. So we sat in the floor and some women smoked and some women smoked and played bridge. And friendships with women were what happened if you did not have a date. Well, I did not want to be somebody who did not have a date. And I often had one. 
when you talk about looking back at this, Diana, one of the things I love so much about the piece is that you write it very much in the moment. You have this incredible memory for detail. So as I'm reading this, I'm reading like a, you know, a piece of history from the late fifties and, and into the early sixties, but how has your understanding of these events evolved over the years? Have you gone through certain phases of thinking about them? And, and I wonder what inflection points in your life have inspired you to, to evolve your thinking on what really happened. Well, I have one friend who said to me, hmm, what do you think about a culture that essentially prepped you, primed you, procured you, and pimped you in order to enable a great man? And that is one extremely harsh way of putting it, yes? But it had reality. And for me, the great thing that happened was, A, the women's movement, and my friendships with women. I mean, I now have friendships that go on for 40 years. And there is a way when I look back and I now know what I wanted from John Kennedy, which he would never have been able to give me, was essentially more. It was open-hearted, human-to-human closeness. And I mean... My joke is that surface to surface is good for missiles, but it's not good for human beings. And so once I came to the women's movement and began seeing that one could feel safe in relationships, in community, that changed things enormously. You talk about what a thrill it was. You know, you you compare it to sort of this Daedalus-like sort of like being pulled towards the sun and the exhilaration. And, you know, just to frame it again for our readers, you know, this begins in 1958 and Senator Kennedy is reelected. He then runs for the White House, wins the White House, becomes president. And you're still with him on and off or off and And you then get a job in the executive office building. There's these poignant, beautiful scenes of you being invited to the Georgetown dinner parties and being seated next to Bobby Kennedy, who's going to check you out. But I guess I also read this and I'm, of course, I know you now and have great fondness for you, but I'm also, which means I'm protective of you uh, now, you know, all these years later, but were you ever nervous or afraid that you would be discovered by uh, Mrs. Kennedy or by the press and then scandalized in some way? No, because it was absolutely unthinkable that he would not be protected by the press. I mean, that was 100% secure. Look, there is the persistence of victimhood and there is the persistence of inequality. And I certainly had I mean, many people think of this man as a kind of statue now, and I think of him as a person. And I write about a scene in which I was invited to the Georgetown House uh, before the official celebration of the inauguration, right? It's going to be a kind of private celebration, then President Kennedy's house in Georgetown. And what became clear in that moment was that he had finally registered 
the fact that the man he had invited to fly with him in his private plane down to Washington, the man with whom he had been on the telephone to discuss economic policy, to discuss positions in the in the treasury, was actually the father of the woman, the young woman who was standing in front of him, whom he had seduced. And I mean, talk about a human moment. I really saw the human being there because there was something, I mean, this was not in the program. Do you know what I mean? It was not where he had the guys around him, where he could absolutely rely on the press. There was this very human moment. And I thought about that recently because a friend, of, another friend of mine had said to me, you know, he would have been transformed and he would have been transformed if he had lived because he had a daughter and his daughter would have turned him around. The misogyny, the womanizing, she would have engaged him in such a powerful way that he would have rethought his culture. Diana, when we look back at JFK, so many of us think of him and, you know, because he died so many years ago, we think of him in relatively straightforward terms, you know, pampered, successful, charismatic womanizer. How do you think of him when you look back? How do you remember him? What I remember was the energetic transfer. In other words, when I first saw him, when he first focused on me and did the thousand watt smile and brought me into his energy field, I thought, yes, this is where I want to be. I want to have my energy. I want to have this connection where I feel absolutely alive as opposed to dying of boredom in classrooms and dying of boredom in the library. So I think of somebody who really opened my eyes to a way of living that was not constrained by convention. Now, I couldn't think of it at the time in any way that was useful to me. I mean, all I thought was, oh, if he keeps calling me up, I'll keep being thrilled and it will be wonderful. And this is all very exciting. And there were these very, very vivid moments of his humanity. I think he would have been capable of change. For me, the big problem was that it then became a sort of underground, an entire identity. I mean, do you look back on him as someone that you loved or someone who took advantage of you, a combination of the two? Oh, love. I mean, I adored him and idealized him, but that was not a good idea. And on the other hand, I now have compassion for myself because I think, what was my alternative? Here came this extraordinary person who chose me. And what was I going to do? Say, oh, no, I don't think so. I don't want to go to the White House. I don't want to be invited to Georgetown parties. I don't want to be in the company of the most glamorous man on the planet. I didn't have that character. I just simply did not. I was completely compelled by my, my culture. Towards the end, when he's realized that he's having an affair with the daughter of a man who's an advisor to him. And, you know, he's got to very coldly break it off. And you say, I think the line is when he lost 
interest in me. I lost interest in me, right? And you then had to find right, find your identity. And, you know, for the readers who haven't seen it yet, you, you go to Paris and, and uh, you know, have some money saved. And, and it's 1962, 63 now. And, and you're in Paris trying to learn the language and, and figure out what is what is next in your life, right? Exactly. And my huge good fortune was precisely that, although, I mean, McGeorge Bundy said to me, well, Diana, what are you going to do now after the death of my father? And out of my mouth came this sentence, I'm going to live in Paris. There's a moment, and without spoiling it, who haven't read it, where you're in Paris, and on the night in Paris that you learn that this man you've been involved with for three, four years has been killed. And, you know, without taking that moment out of the piece, you know, oftentimes affairs we have in our youth shape us later, all our lives, in ways big and small. I never asked you when we were editing the piece, uh, but I'll ask you now, if if in any way that, that time with Kennedy shapes you still as, as, as in, in your relationships with people? It shapes me in the sense that I feel as if I have left a skin behind me. That in other words, the world of inequality, the world of men are important and women are, you know, we hope that they're attractive and pleasing, but not so much. That I lived that so intensely at such a kind of heightened level of experience that when that began to crumble, when I found the alternative of work, of relationships and friendships with women, of parenting, of a life as an actor and now a life as a psychotherapist. I mean, in the moment, I'm working on a book on aging and because it gets for me, life has gotten better and better and better as I've gone along. I just want to encourage everyone to read the piece because we could talk about it here all day long. But I think your voice in person is wonderful and your voice on the page is so exquisite. The way that you frame this story and and take us all back to that time and, and your insights into not only Kennedy, but into yourself as a young woman living in this very peculiar piece of American history. It's really remarkable and enjoyable to read. Thank you. Oh, you're so kind. Please, can we be best friends? I mean, let's start right now. Diana, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Well, Michael, I thought I had read everything there was to read about JFK's sex life. It turns out I was wrong. I love this story. I mean, it's, you know, we're all prone to looking back at these relationships that guided us and governed us in our you know, in, in our salad days of adulthood. And it, she just writes with such passion and beauty, really, but also with the incredible understanding of not only the time she lived in then, but the time that she lives in now. I just love this story. Yeah, really someone to 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 learn a lot from. Well, shall we move on to some lighter fare? Is there anything else in the issue that we should go into? Well, yeah, I was wondering if you want to take us to that new hotel that Alexander Lebrano's writing about. Oh, Villani. I know Alec Lebrano really goes to the best places. Alec writes a, about this great new hotel called Villani 3.3 that uh, has me yearning to go back. It only has eight rooms. It's on a tiny little island. It's built into a hillside. It looks like a really beautiful place to watch the boats go by. 
Well, I, I guess like we've had a, a lot of light and cheery fare. And for the record, we are not going to talk about Afghanistan this week. You can get that on every other podcast. But we do have a really thoughtful view from here written by Stephen Murphy, who speaks with Al Gore about everyone's favorite topic, climate change. Uh, and Al Gore has a hopeful message, which is it's not too late to prevent a complete disaster. But Stephen wonders, but is it too late for us, the people, to change? <sighs> Heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff, but you know, I think it's important stuff. And, and, and if we've seen in anything, you know, over the last couple of months this summer, with the fires raging across the planet from Siberia to the California, to the Greek islands and Sardinia, the floods in Europe and at various other places. So it's clear that things are out of balance. And as you know, Gore says, you know, he believes the severity and frequency of these extreme events have forced society to cross a political tipping point. You know, really what Gore talks about and Murphy as well is, you know, it's this this culture tipping point is can we, we know we have to change, but do we, can we, will we? And um, this is, you know, it's, it's a societal question as much as a scientific question. It's an urgent piece that I would say you all should read. Okay. Well, on that cheery note, Michael, I will go back to recycling my LaCroix cans and charging up my electric car. If you have anything at all to recommend, Michael, now is the time. I have two things I want to recommend. They both come out of the issue. Um, One is something I haven't seen, but I really want to see. And it's a write-up from... Patricia Zone this week about a beautiful new show at the San Francisco Museum of Art, which opens September 4th, about Joan Mitchell, who revolutionized post-war American art alongside the other quote-unquote Ninth Street women, Lee Krasner and Ellen uh, and Elaine de Kooning. But she's finally getting her due. I really would love to see that. The other thing, I'm recommending two things I haven't seen. The other one comes from John Lahr, our theater man. And uh, he writes about a couple shows that have sort of gotten the West End in London up on its feet uh, in the past couple of weeks. The first is a uh, reboot of Hairspray, the John Waters musical. Uh, it's a revival of the 2002 production, which John loves. The second one is a revival of Cole Porter's 1934 musical, Anything Goes, uh, at the Barbican, which uh, he uh, updates as well. So both of them, I think, as, as John Lauer points out in his reviews, you know, it's clear that theater was looking for some of the shows that were going to transport us and take us out of this uh, malaise for the last 18 months. And then he finally ends up on a well, look at with the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Cinderella with the book by Emerald Fennell in lyrics by David Spell. And he says it's, it's you know, very campy, but uh, if that's what you are into, you will enjoy it. So three shows in London, if you're there, why not go in and uh, support The Return of the West End? What are you recommending today, this week? Well, I did just watch the first three episodes of a new series that's coming to HBO on August 30th. It's called Leticia. It's a limited drama series. And it is from France. I'm not That's not the only reason to watch it, but it is a compelling one. And it was written and directed by Jean-Xavier de l'Estrade. And this is a true story. Uh, and it's a true crime story. So it's even all the better for that. It's an investigation into the disappearance of an 18-year-old girl. And this was a case that riveted 
Western France about 10 years ago. And he recreates this. Uh, there's an 18-year-old girl named Leticia and her family discovers her abandoned scooter right outside of her house. And detectives go through an exhaustive search and some suspects emerge. And I'm not going to tell you anymore because I don't want to spoil it, but it's a really compelling, uh, dramatic, uh, and deeply human story. And I really enjoyed this. So it's a new six-part series, Leticia, coming to HBO Max. Well, anyway, Michael, I've got to go because I actually have a lunch date right now with uh, Diana DeVay, my new BFF. Yeah, I got to go. I have, an, I have a lunch date on the island of Panarea where I'm just cruising by right now. But that's another story for another day. Jealous. Michael's on a boat, everyone. Hashtag boat life. It's been wonderful talking to you this week. You too. Well, thank you so much. And on that note, Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.